We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host, Nick Bellato. Today we decided to expand a little bit. We just did a podcast breaking down head coaching candidates. We went in detail on Brian Dable. We thought maybe it would be valuable to provide a 30,000-foot view of what we're looking for from an X's and O's and schematic standpoint on both sides of the ball with no matter who it is running that side of the ball, the offense and the defense, whether that's the head coach, someone he hires as the coordinator to call plays on either side of the ball, whoever it may be, just concepts, things we like that we've seen the Giants do in the past, I guess more so on the defensive side of the ball, there will be more examples. Things we didn't like, more so on the offensive side of the ball, there will be more examples maybe. And things we've seen other teams do that we like, that we hope will be employed to the Giants. We know you guys like our X's and O's breakdowns. We'll break down a few plays we've seen from Brian Dayball specifically that we really like from a schematic and X's and O's standpoint that would hopefully be brought kind of easy straight over to the Giants. And we'll go from there. So, Nick, before we dive into any of that, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing well, man. Doing well. You know, talking a lot of football on this beautiful Monday. And I love doing that, to be honest. So, and it's also awesome to be here with you, my friend. It's the best to be able to talk football any day. And especially with you, Nick, it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot throughout this experience, obviously, bringing you on. And the entire Giants, I guess, last three years we've done, or two or three years, I'm losing track of time because it's been such a grind, unfortunately has been a learning experience, right? We've had to go through some deep, dark times, but I always feel like at the end of this, we have some hope. And I feel like right now there is some hope related to the unknown of what someone like Dayball or whoever ends up coming over the Giants can bring to the offense. And then on the flip side, whoever ends up being the coordinator can bring to the defense. And that's what we want to talk about today, just things that we'd like to see moving forward. So let's start on the offensive side of the ball. What is one thing that you'd like to see uh being you'd like to see come over to the Giants from a schematic or X's and O's standpoint on this offense. I would like to see a coordinator with 
an identity and a coordinator that can design and sequence plays. Now, I think Brian Dayball has all that, and he's not necessarily a coordinator, but I would imagine that would be delegated to whoever he brings in as the nominal offensive coordinator. What I mean by that is somebody who can design plays against specific defenses, something that we saw a lot against Steve Spagnuolo's defense in that divisional round and something we've seen a lot all throughout the season. And I want somebody who is going to know when to call what against what specific defense. And I'm going to go over a couple plays a little bit later on from that Kansas City game, and you'll see how Brian Dayball did such a phenomenal job at doing that. Yeah, and it seems so simple maybe in its concept, like, right? The way you break it down, like, that sounds like, hey, anyone should be able to do it, but it's not. Like, we've seen plenty of Giants offensive minds try to do that and fail. And those those are such core tenets in what you need from a good offense. Like, designing looks that get players open versus what the defense is showing. It's knowing when to call the plays versus each defensive look. That's the core of all this. And that's on the quarterback as well at times, especially because these defenses do such a good job of adjusting post-snap and rotating coverages and rotating safeties and doing little things that make it difficult for an offensive coordinator to kind of predict the future and kind of put it in the hands of the quarterback with, uh, well, you got to adjust now on the fly, but it's also on the coordinator. It's also on the play designer. So, I'm with you at that. I think that's probably the core of what we can hope for next. One thing that I'm looking for, Nick, with whoever the next offensive coordinator, whoever it might be, is to simply run the offense through your best players. Pick a core and have the offense be designed through those players. I think that will make things a lot more dynamic. I think it will make things a lot easier for the quarterback in in general to kind of feel through and read through the offense. I said it last offseason. I said the best chance the Giants have of competing in 2021 is designing an offense from day one, retooling your entire offense to run through Tony, Galladay, and Barkley with variations of pre-stat motion, misdirection, use the way you can use them, use those three players to play off of each other to get, you know, as eye candy to get the defense's eyes moving in one direction when the ball's going to go an entirely other direction. But have your offense run through core players and go from there. And, you know, you can design different things, like even though you saw yesterday, right? Like that offense is designed in many ways for the Bills, Brian Dayball we're speaking of, to go through Stefan Diggs. But the adjustment that was made based on, you know, injuries in the Chiefs secondary, what the Chiefs were showing uh, from a post-snap standpoint was to go through Gabriel Davis. Like use him as your weapon, have him in these one-on-ones. And that's not to say you can't do the same with a Darius Slayton or whoever the Giants kind of end up settling in on as their number four next year. But have that offense at its core, have the defense expecting it to run through Tony Galladay Barkley or whoever your big three might be. And that's what I'm looking forward to uh, with the next coordinator. Use Tony and constantly in jet sweep motion, have Barkley going in the opposite direction. There's all different sites of uh, all different kinds of little ways to have this happen, but have your offense run through its best players. Yeah, and that kind of plays off my next one as well. And it it kind of plays into the adjustments and variety in personnel alignment usage. And I think the Giants personnel is uniquely set up to to be used uh, advantageously in terms of Kadarius Toney, because what is Kadarius Toney? He, I don't want to call him a gadget player. I think it's a little bit disrespectful, but he's a player who can wear a lot of hats. Look at how Kyle Shanahan uses Debo Samuel. Debo Samuel was a receiver drafted out of South Carolina who was injured a lot. But when you looked at him and I saw him down at the senior bowl up close and personal, his lower body is thick, bro. 
It's thick with like three C's and he has a running back type of power. And I'm not going to compare Kadarius Tony to Debo Samuel in terms of how good they are right now, or maybe even how good they can be. But I do think Kadarius Tony has unique, rare, elite type of change of direction ability. Now he may not have the power and that finishing ability that Debo Samuel has, but he does have contact balance. And I think if you put him in the right situation, then you can maximize those unique skill sets. Now, he needs to stay healthy, stay on the field. But I think that plays into what you were saying. And then I go down to Dallas, man. Look what Dallas did in that wild card loss with C.D. Lamb. The dude had four targets. The guy had one reception in that game, and they hardly used him in the slot. Now, C.D. Lamb is much more than a slot receiver. Yes, he can play Z, he can play X. You can line him up in the backfield. You can do so many different things with C.D. Lamb. But why not put him in the slot to give him easier looks, to give Dak Prescott a little bit more of an easier throwing lane to CD Lamb, a quicker target? Why are you using him outside when obviously that is not working whatsoever? CD Lamb aligned 6.5% of the times in the slot in that game against San Francisco. Why, man? You're not allowing him to get open. Why are you targeting Cedric Wilson like 10 times when you have someone like C.D. Lamb? And I get that you want to go with what the defense is allowing you to do. But sometimes, as you said, you got to get the ball into your playmaker's hands. And we saw what Kellen Moore did. We saw what Mike McCarthy did. They did not do that. And they lost in embarrassing fashion. I hope the new coordinator realizes how important it is to get your true playmakers going. Yeah, you bring up a great example, Nick. A lot of the best offensive minds over the last decade, this is like constant, so many examples, the sample size is so large, have done a really good job of using their best receiver as a slot weapon. We saw this happen a lot with Allen Robinson in the past. We've seen this happen with uh, different types of players. CeeDee Lamb, obviously, his rookie year, two years ago. But that's something I would hope to see from whoever the next call play caller is for the Giants on the offensive side of the ball with Kenny Galladay, because Kenny Galladay, may not seem like your prototypical quick quick slot guy, but you can win with size in the slot as well. Allen Robinson's a great example of that. And I think that Galladay has some of the traits that can work as a slot receiver. He doesn't have to be just pigeonholed in to this X position that Jason Garrett wanted him to play for the New York Giants or, you know, kind of that prototypical position in that type of system. And so I think that's a great point, using players like that in the slot, not not being so rigid with, you know, the positions for each receiver and where they're going to be lined up on each play. Um, obviously, that's something that we've seen in the past with, with the Giants as well. So it's not like, you know, Kevin Gilbride did a good job of that at times as well. So something to look forward to as well. Working kind of off of that for me, I would say that, one thing I would like to see a little bit more of moving forward, no matter who it may be as the coordinator, is a better utilization of the screen game. The screen game has been something the Giants haven't been able to figure out with their running backs or their tight ends for quite some time. And it's something that can really help them win games and can and it's a, just a good way for them to ne to negate uh, a team that's bringing a lot of blitzes, a lot of run blitzes and a team that's playing an aggressive style. And we've seen in the past the Giants have really struggled with Daniel Jones against teams that bl are blitz heavy. That's been the book on Jones since Bowles did it the first time he played him, not the 2019 game, but the second time he played him in 2020. The book has been out and obviously the Steelers did it before that week one of the 2020 season, but he has not done a good job against the blitz. He doesn't do a great job of identifying the hot read. He doesn't do a great job of getting the ball out quick. Uh, he, he pats the ball up, burps the baby. He's obviously not great with his pocket manipulation or his ability to kind of reset the pocket as well. So that's something that can help the quarterback. You you work in a really good screen game and you can negate those blitzes and you can get you can you can make the defense think twice about playing such an aggressive game plan.
Yes, and I think the Giants and Jason Garrett attempted this. Now, it was not successful. Some of that was the timing of the offensive linemen coming off their blocks. Some of that was just purely poor execution. But at that same time, I do believe the Giants can probably expand on that, especially when they're facing those coordinators like Todd Bowles, the really, really aggressive ones like Keith Butler in that Steelers game. And that kind of goes to what we talked about on the last podcast when we and what I just mentioned earlier, how you want coordinators who are going to call the right plays at the right times. There wasn't a lot of times where we were like, oh, Jason Garrett, you called that screen at the perfect time. They brought six guys, man. You really caught them sleeping. That didn't necessarily happen all that often. So I love that call by you. And I have another one too. And that is uh, make the game simpler for your quarterback, man, or more simple, I should say. More optimal first reads. And I think this is something that Pat Shermer did an excellent job with Daniel Jones early on in his career, in his rookie season, where you don't have to have him make full field progressions. You can have that half field read. One, You read one defender, whatever he does, you throw to the opposite direction of that defender. Now, I think you look around the national football. You have quarterbacks like Tom Brady. You have quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers, like Dak Prescott, all those guys are capable of doing full field reads. But you don't have to have them do that all the time. And I've heard uh, people that I respect in the football community, like Seth Galina, Deontay Lee, really went over the Dallas film. They're talking about how Dak Prescott was always tasked to to do that in Kellen Moore's offense. And yes, he can do that. He's good enough to do that. But why ask him to do that and put all of that on his shoulders when you can kind of simplify your offense a little bit more and still move the football? You know, get the football into your best player's hands, create easy touches, design touches, something the Steelers did basically on every play, it seemed like this season. So I think that's an element. If you're struggling to run the football, get the football into your playmaker's hands for easy design touches or simplify your deeper passing attack by making more optimal first reads against specific defenses. Yeah, you're spot on. And I think, you know, just like you said, it, that doesn't, net, you know, some people might hear that and think that means, okay, we're going to go to this quick hitting passing game, like even maybe the Steelers had over these past years. It doesn't necessarily mean that. The Giants had vertical elements in their passing game in that simplified offense for Daniel Jones in 2019 with Pat Shermer. And so it's possible to still generate a vertical passing game with something like half field, high, low reads or something of that nature that we've seen in the past from the giants. Now, the thing for me is I don't want to lean too heavily on that. I think it's good to find a balance between asking your quarterback to make full field reads and go through all of his progressions and have that open to him. And for simplifying an offense, because obviously in my, or not obviously in my mind over time, if you had just kind of relied on that Pat Shermer, half field read all the, all the concepts he used to help, unlock in a sense Daniel Jones rookie season it would have bogged down because I think defenses would have adjusted to it and I think they did they took away a lot of the concepts that worked for Jones uh you know even in 2020 with a new system he, they still tried to rely on some of the things that worked and they weren't there we saw it with Teddy Bridgewater this year in Denver he had he got off to an incredible start through those first three or four or five games everyone's like oh my god Teddy Bridgewater who saw this coming he looks unreal and then he totally you know, bogged down in that Pat Shermer offense as defenses adjusted and as they started to take away some things. So to me, it's 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 kind of finding that mix as well and not just relying oh, one way like Jason Garrett did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all about mix. It's always about mix. It's if you have gone three and out the last three drives, it's about simplifying it like like Kellen Moore should have did for Dak Prescott in that last, in that wild card game. It's about simplifying the read and not making it, so difficult for him. It's always about it. You never want to become stagnant or 
or uh, predictable in this game. Because when you do, defensive coordinators are smart, man. They're going to pounce on you. And that's how you end up like the 2021 Giants. Yeah, exactly. But having said that, of course, still go back to it. Don't be Jason Garrett. Don't ask it. Don't ask a quarterback who's not really, hasn't really shown too much of the ability to being capable of running a full field read offense on 100% of the snaps to do it. Like, give him some half field high low reads again. You know, like you said, practice the screen game more to make that an option. Uh, use RPO and more, at more opportune times and more often just things of that nature that we hope to see with any quarterback, like whoever the giants get, if it's Daniel, unless they trade for a Watson or Wilson or veteran quarterback, they're going to be getting no matter who it is. And I hate to say this, but it's the truth. If you look at the film, a quarterback who needs to develop from a processing standpoint, whether that be Jones in year four. And I hate to say it because it is year four, it really shouldn't be the case, but it is whether that be Jones in year four or a rookie, no matter who that rookie is, it's going to take a long time to develop from a processing standpoint at the NFL level. So simplify it for him. Don't ask him to do so much right away. And I know, I guess Jason Garrett felt like Daniel Jones was capable of this either a or B just felt like I can't run an offense. that doesn't work like this. I, I, I would tend to, if I had to guess, think it was option B. He's just like, this is my offense, learn it, get good at it, or you're not the guy. But that's not how it should be. You have to adjust your personnel at all times, a, a, you know. And that's some. That's a great point, Nick. And I hope they can do that. One thing I really want to see, Nick, no matter who the coordinator is on the offensive side of the ball for the next guy, all but eliminate the fades and the bubble screens from the red zone play calling mix. This is just not a good option for the Giants. This is just not a good option for any offense. You know, there's a lot of stats that show how poor on a per play basis the fade call is in the red zone. Bubble screens to me, I'd love to look at some stats if anyone has them on them. I feel like bubble screens are dead on arrival in the red zone. There's just no space to run a bubble screen. In my mind, it takes too long for the ball to get out there to the player. And by that point, everybody's just just uh, rallying down to him. And there's just the, the safeties are just too close to the line of scrimmage. All players are just too close to the line of scrimmage. So for me, there's got to be a way to just look at the good red zone offenses copy what they're doing it's a copycat league and find a way to find something better than a bubble screen and a fade from your red zone play calling mix what's going on everyone football is finally back and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find giants tickets anymore because tick pick that's t-i-c-k p-i-c-k is the original no fee ticket site and the only one you'll ever need as you go to find NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all those awful service fees that other ticket sites charge. Aren't those terrible? Which lets them guarantee the best prices on all of their NFL tickets. Don't believe it? If you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. That's a pretty good deal. If you just want to go check out the Giants, you know, pregame, hopefully they win a football game, then Please head on over to TickPick.com today to save $10 on your first order of Giants tickets. That's TickPick.com. Check it out, everyone. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the bubble screen, it, it depends on what the defensive look is because we've seen a lot of teams use the bubble screen in the red zone, teams that are a lot better than the New York Giants, like the Green Bay Packers, to success. And we've seen even fades work, like we saw Matt Stafford hit Odell Beckham, but that's because you have Matt Stafford and you have Odell Beckham and he's up against rookie Marco Wilson out of the University of Florida. So if you have those types of mismatches, not Kenny Galladay against Darius Slay, then yes, you could take it once in a while. But I felt like, and I know you would agree, Dan, it was a big part of the Jason Garrett red zone offense. And if there's one thing we complained about extensively on this podcast, it was the Jason Garrett red zone offense, really the offense as a whole, but specifically in the red zone. That's why the Giants always had to settle for field goals. So yes, I would uh, 100% agree with that. And this is one that kind of harkens back to the 2017 draft a little bit, and even before that. And that's actually established mismatches man the Giants drafted Evan Ingram to be this mismatch nightmare somebody who could split two high defenses up the seam and the Giants didn't really do that all that often with him yeah he dealt with some injuries but even when he was healthy didn't necessarily utilize him in that manner felt like Jason Garrett tried to plug him into a situation a square peg into a round hole and that's another thing i don't want a coordinator to do i want you to maximize your personnel and not try to fit square pegs into round holes and have him run y stick something that he was absolutely terrible with so that's another thing i want you to take advantage of your mismatch and i think the giants have personnel to take advantage of mismatches but you have to establish them you can't be overly static before the snap. So in the pre-snap phase, utilize motion and pre-snap movement to try to establish whenever you're against a man coverage defense. Because if you even get that established, that may force a head coach to call a timeout. So then you're just burning timeouts for the opposing team, like Joe Judge is on the opposite sideline. So those are some things that I would like for the next coordinator to do is actually utilize the mismatches that the defense... or get your mismatches into a position to take advantage of defensive mismatches. Cause it's just something that just did not happen all that often, despite the fact the giants had some personnel that they selected high to be mismatch nightmares. 
Yeah, not only that they selected high, that proved they can do it. You know, like in the past, Kenny Galloway has proven he can beat a mismatch, you know, a mismatched defensive back. In the past, can in, in this season, Kenny Gadarius uh, Tony, Tony has proven that. In the past, I know it's crazy, but Ingram has proven it at some spots. Like if you get him in the right position, and Barkley obviously as well. You saw him on some of those wheel routes this year, and occasionally when they used him on other kind of isolated routes from the from from the running back position. So it's not like they didn't have the guys to do it. I know everybody says, "Oh my God." all this stuff but no they had the guys and it just wasn't a, part, a big enough part of what jason garrett did and that's something that the good news on that front is that brian if they do hire brian dable he will do that like i've watched enough of the bills to know that they use a lot of pre-snap motion they use a lot of different ways to give it, the quarterback an indicator of if it's going to be zone or man which is really important in my mind for a young quarterback or even a quarterback who's not quote-unquote young like daniel jones going into year four but somebody who is young from a processing standpoint like he is not he hasn't developed well there in my mind and in almost everyone's mind who doesn't want, you know, as you know, removing the bias and removing the fan side of it. So that's important. Make it easier for them. Why not? It doesn't hurt you to make things easier for the quarterback. You're not losing much of anything by doing things like that on a constant nature. It seems like it's just an easy win to me. It's just a no reason not to do it. So definitely something I'm looking forward to as well. And I feel like we'll get that. I think that was just kind of a Jason Garrett weird thing. Um, one thing I want to see, Nick, this is kind of, uh, you know, going we, and we've talked a little bit on the past about this, but just find a way, find a way to utilize the seam in your passing game. Right. Like, how hard is it for the Giants since since they drafted Evan Ingram? I feel like they've just haven't utilized the seam almost at all in the passing game. The one time I saw it was like a three to four game stretch in 2019 when Ingram got hurt and Caden Smith was their only tight end left, essentially. <laughs> And they started to utilize the seam with Caden Smith and Daniel Jones. And then that was just like it. That, nope, nope, two more years of it, nothing. It's just like that was it. We like it's like, oh, that worked really well. Let's never use that again. So I don't know what it is or how you have to do it, but find a way to utilize the seam in the passing game. Absolutely. I was going to bring that up too. how Caden Smith became the seam nightmare as a rookie when Evan Ingram was injured at the tail end of the 2019 season. And we saw it a lot, man. Brian Dayball and Pat Mahomes and Eric Bieniemy were really abusing the seam in the in the divisional round this past this past weekend. I mean, when the defense allows you to do that, when they play too high and and they you know utilize your nickelback on outside leverage, then you have an inside release inside. As long as you beat that outside leveraged nickelback, you're going to win inside, and those safeties are going to split to their landmarks, which is typically you know maybe like a yard or two inside the numbers. So you're going to have the entire scene to work with in those situations. So that's definitely something I hope to see as well. Yeah, hopefully we'll get that from the next coordinator, whoever that may be. And then let's just talk about some other things that I'd like to see. And I'm curious to get your take on. I'm in. I'm all in. I don't care what the personnel is. I'm in for the pass-heavy game scripts. I don't care who it is. I know Dave will bring that with him if that's an option. But whoever comes over, make this a pass-first team, Okay. Look at what the Bengals have done over the last four weeks with just an insanely pass-heavy game script. I know they have some of the personnel to do it, but are the Giants really that far off? I think Galladay, when healthy, could be a really good weapon at receiver, and so can Kadarius Toney. Uh, so I feel like they're not too far off from being able to run a pass-heavy offense with pass-heavy game scripts on neutral game scripts. Like, don't just make it be like we've seen too often over the last few seasons. The Giants passing game decides to wake up or even try to move the ball. 
once they get once they get behind. Like under the in the Joe Judge era, there were so many times where the Giants were so content with just grinding out games like thirteen to ten when they weren't trailing, just to try to win those games like that. And then, like for example, like the Saints game is such a good example. Who's to say the Giants couldn't have attacked like that the entire game from the passing standpoint, but they didn't really go for it until they got down 21-10 in that game. So just come out with more neutral situation pass-heavy game scripts is my would be my uh, one, another thing I'd like to see. I knew that was going to be on your list, and it's on mine as well. And obviously, it's all contextual. If you're able to run the football, you can run the football down their throat. Then obviously, you're going to do that. But if you keep getting one yard and stuffed at the line of scrimmage, actually come out with some creative passes and establish those mismatch and do some of the things that we've kind of been going over on this podcast. Yeah, no doubt. And this is another one that's kind of minor, but I'll throw it out there. Over the past two coordinators, for whatever reason unknown to me, this has been a Garrett thing and a Shermer thing. They've been among the league leaders in second and run run uh, second and ten run calls. Now, all of the stats. This is not up for debate. You can just simply look at the numbers. The numbers are so stark that this is not something I'll debate with you. So you can come to my Twitter. You can whine. I don't care. I don't give a crap. I'm not going to listen to it. Second and ten run calling a run on second and ten is the worst decision in football for a play caller can make. The single worst decision from a statistical standpoint. And the Giants have been among the league leaders in that decision under both Shermer and Garrett. So spare me it. Please go away from it. Whoever is calling these plays, stop running the ball on second and ten. Give up on that. Do not try to get in third and manageable with your run. It's not a wise decision. Go for fifteen. Go for ten. Go for 40, go for a touchdown on second and 10 over running the ball. I would rat prefer all of those things, even if they lead to an incompletion. Yeah, take the two shots to try to get the first down rather than picking up one or two yards, especially with the Giants offensive line to set up a third and eight or something like that. Yeah, even a third and six, I don't care. You get four yards. It doesn't even make it that much easier. Just come on. Try to get try to think of this from a different standpoint. I would, would be my my hope. Don't think of it like we have three plays to get 10 yards. And I think that's kind of the overall thing I definitely like to see. I think we're going to get that no matter who it is. I think Jason Garrett's very rare in that in that standpoint from that standpoint. Uh, Very rare in the sense that he's um, not exactly there's or I should say there's not exactly too many coordinators who subscribe to his you know, 10 yards and three plays, 10 yards and three plays. Let's get 10 yards and three plays type of offense. But whoever it may be, obviously, and you talked about some last podcast, Nick, let's let's go away from that. Yeah, let's uh, let's establish a respectable offense here. That's that's what I really hope, man. I mean, and the the outline for it, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit before, would be the Cincinnati Bengals, man. They sucked two years ago. They draft Joe Burrow and the Giants don't have a chance out of Joe Burrow more than likely. Right. Unless they trade for one of those veteran quarterbacks. And then they suck again. <laughs> and Zach Taylor, you know, he's halfway out the door. They give him one more year. Everything comes together. They don't necessarily have a great offensive line. The outside-in approach actually worked there. And obviously, there are a lot of variables that lead into that. The rapport with Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow himself and all the things that he can do. I mean, they operate out of empty with a subpar offensive line. And Joe Burrow's processing and quick release is able to kind of overcome those situations. So there's blueprints here, and that's not the only one. There are other teams that have been successful kind of turning it around in a, in a quick manner. Now, I'm not sure if the Giants have the quarterback. Their offensive line is an absolute issue right now, but that's the hope right now is that the Giants in two years can find their way into a playoff contention. It seems like everybody that I know who's a Bills fan 
talks and speaks incredibly highly about Joe Shane. We just saw Brandon Bean, who made himself available to the public to talk to Giants and Bills writers, which was insane because not a lot of general managers make themselves available. I mean, how many times did Dave Gettleman and Jerry Reese just make themselves available uh, to talk to the media? It opens yourself up to a lot of different, you know, uh, criticisms and, and just questions that you might not want to answer. But Brandon Bean did just to kind of heap praise on Joe Shane and to kind of reassure everybody over here in New York, like, yo, dude, this guy has been involved in everything. Josh Allen, he's been involved in literally everything. He's groomed for this moment. You guys got a guy here. So let's hope that's true and he can kind of turn this around quicker than than we originally anticipated. Yeah, no doubt about it. And one other thing I'd like to see while we're on it, and I think we talked about this in the last podcast, but it's worth reiterating, is more vertical, vertically oriented passing concept, more Mills concept, something so simple as the Mills concept we've gone over, and the Giants have even used at times Jason Garrett successfully, but just use it more often. And Brian Dable uses it all the time. Use it more, for example, that's just one example. Use it more often, right? Like whoever it may be, attack defenses vertically it gives you so much of an advantage not just on those specific plays but in how the defenses can then play you and how they have to align versus you and how they have to respect the way that you call an offense they can't just creep up on you when you're trying to attack them vertically all the time and putting their safeties in conflict on a more frequent basis and that's the big thing here like you mentioned this and it was the, it was one of my favorite things you ever told uh you know taught me nick it's like Put the safeties in conflict. That's like one of my keys to to a successful passing game. Just constantly be the offense that's putting the safeties in conflict and making them have to make a decision where if they make the wrong read on it or if the quarterback does a good enough job holding them with his eyes, or like you said in the last example, like with the Gabe Davis play, with the pump fake, well, then you can burn them for a big shot. Yeah, that 75-yard touchdown to Gabe Davis had had two contingencies in there to occupy that middle of the field safety. Or maybe, maybe that was the third touchdown, actually, is what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so like, yeah, it was the third touchdown, not the 75-yard one. But the 75-yard one had a contingency to occupy with the bender on the Mills concept as well. And we can break down those Brian Dayball plays whenever you want to. And you can see there's a lot of not even just putting safeties in conflict, but putting players in conflict, using pre-snap motion to set up conflict against man coverage and it was just an excellent i would say just design execution all those things came together and you need the horses to execute as well and that's something that is a question mark right now with the new york giants specifically at the offensive line and at the quarterback position but dayball really really i i guess you could say maximizes a lot of the great personnel that joe shane has given him so that and obviously brandon bean has given him yep exactly all right, anything else you want to see from the offensive side of the ball before we talk about some of the defensive concepts we'd like to see brought over? I'd like to see actual development on the offensive line, and that's something that's probably going to go into the offensive line coach. And this isn't necessarily a knock on Rob Sale, but there was a lot of talk before the season about Rob Sale coming over and how it was going to be stability. I bought into that 110%. It made a lot of sense because with Colombo, there was no stability, and then Diego Guillermo was kind of a uh, you know stopgap type of coach. And then you bring in Rob Sale, but then right away he loses Shane Lemieux. The front office didn't give him a lot of depth there. You had two guys end up retiring, two guys that you probably shouldn't have been relying on uh, either. So he wasn't really given the best shake. But how 
long have we been talking about development on the offensive line? I remember when we first, uh, when I first came on this podcast, Dan, we were criticizing Hal Hunter for being the offensive line coach, and he was just kind of boys with Pat Shermer. Then you bring in Colombo, high hopes flared out. You bring in Rob Sale, kind of got screwed over. Now he's gone. So I would like for these young players on the offensive line to actually develop and make themselves at least adequate, man, because right now they're marginal to poor in certain areas of their game, and it doesn't seem like they ever develop and continue to develop. And that's my big gripe right there. And I hope that they can bring in an offensive line coach that can maintain their development trajectory to go upward. Yeah, that's a great point. And I got an easy solution for that. Throw the goddamn bag. And I mean the goddamn bag because this guy does not want to leave the area he's currently living in because his family's up there. But you can probably woo him over with enough money. Like just say, I don't know, the highest paid contract ever for an offensive line coach. And hire Mike Munchak to be your offensive line coach. Why not? His track record is off the charts. I mean, he turned that Steelers offensive line into a dominant year after year, consistent beast without even that much crazy talent. Like ugh, Villanueva, like freaking Villanueva was like an elite left tackle for a decade. With and like some of these guys that were getting were getting production out of unbelievable and then he has to restart everything when he goes over to denver with garrett bowles who at the time was considered to be a bust and on the bus track turns bowles into one of the better left tackles a consistent force who earns a second contract develops dalton reisner immediately you know develops other players on that line and gets that unit to be an incredible unit look at the success rate the broncos had from a run standpoint last year just consistently churning yards in the run game and also they were pretty good overall marks as a pass protecting unit so throw the damn bag at munchak make him the highest paid offensive line coach ever who cares it's not our money mara has plenty of it and it doesn't go against the salary cap 100 percent agree with you but de castro and, and pouncy were pretty good offensive linemen true, as well true, there so what it wasn't like complete pouncy scrubs that they heard a lot of it but yeah you're right it it's not like he had complete scrubs i wasn't trying to say that for sure Absolutely. But either way, your your point is 100% correct. Throw the bag at that guy and bring him over to assist this offensive line. I mean, I don't know how many regimes we have to go through where the offensive line is the Achilles heel of the team, but it just keeps happening. I mean, Daniel Jones, if his time in New York is over, I mean, the kid wasn't really given the best chance to succeed with everything that was around him and just the lack of play from guys like Will Hernandez, who were supposed to develop the Matt Parrish, you have Nate Solder out there. I mean, it's just been terrible. Luckily, Andrew Thomas really really developed and maybe some credit should be given to Rob Sale for that but also we know Andrew Thomas works his ass off and it seems like the Giants found themselves a long-term left tackle in him but that's definitely 100% accurate man you have to have to find the right guy at the offensive line coach this staff needs to be put together the right way from whoever's the head coach let's break down some Brian Dayball plays especially because there's obviously a chance he might be the next Giants head coach yeah, so I want to break down all four of the touchdown passes to Gabe Davis. I think they're all important. And the first touchdown was an 18-yard touchdown strike on a first and 10 play. And what I would name this play, if I had to name it, it would be create traffic and confusion versus man coverage. So pre-snap, they use inside-out motion with Cole Beasley from a three-by-one set to form a two-by-two two set. And this confirmed man coverage, something you mentioned on the last podcast about Brian Dayball. And it also confirmed a pressure look right before the snap. So Josh Allen knows that there's going to be pressure coming in on him. Devin Singletary is in the backfield to assist to that. So this is going to be a six-man protection. So to the field, and this is where the touchdown is going to happen, you have Davis release inside of the cornerback. 
And in doing so, since Cole Beasley was in motion towards Davis, he ends up setting a pick on the cornerback that's following Cole Beasley because he was moving laterally. And at the snap, Beasley then pivots at the line of scrimmage and darts directly inside. Now, you have Cole Beasley wide open because his assignment is going over the top of Gabe Davis's release. But then Legereus Sneed, who is on Cole Beasley, panics. It's number 38. He absolutely panics because Beasley is wide open. So as he's trying to work over the top of Davis's release and Davis's stem, he contacts the cornerback who is on Gabe Davis. That is creating that traffic and that confusion. And in contacting him, both cornerbacks fall to the ground and Gabe Davis is wide open for a touchdown. This was against a cover zero look at the top of the screen. We just had a simple hitch seam type of play. It's a, uh, you know, good cover three beater. I guess you could say with digs and knocks, but the play was going to be towards the boundary. Once the man coverage was confirmed and once the pressure was confirmed, because even if those cornerbacks didn't fall down, you had Cole Beasley wide open. I think that is excellent scheming against that specific defense. And you had contingencies against zone and man built into that. Everything you like to see from a play caller there, you got. You got contingencies versus man and zone. You got easy diagnosis for the quarterback. You got a perfect call against the cover zero look. And boy, does Spags love to bring pressure. It's so fun watching him call a game. He's just such a, a IDG, IDGAF type of coach. He just doesn't give a crap a lot of the time. He just sends pressure after pressure, and it works a lot of the time. I mean, like, this is something we'll talk about in a little bit uh, about the defense side of the ball. But sending pressure at times, depending on the game's like the moment of the game can be a really good decision. But like you said, this play has it all. This it's, it's got contingency plans. It's designed perfectly to attack this style of defense. And so I just love to hear a really good breakdown of that play. What's the second play you wanted to go over from Dable? Yeah, second touchdown to Gabe Davis. And this is the first play of the drive after a Kansas City touchdown. It's late in the third quarter. And I'm going to name this one, take a shot, but not any shot. And this shot was 75 yards. So pre-snap, the Bills come out in I formation. So it looks like they're going to be running the football. You have two receivers outside of the numbers here with a tight end. You are in 21 personnel. So what they do right before the snap, the fullback kind of moves to a weak offset I formation type. The defense is in base personnel. They're in a press alignment on both those outside receivers, and they're in a two high shell. So this is going to be a play action mills type of concept. And what they're going to do, and the ball is in the middle of the field. That's important. Dawson Knox from his Y position is going to release and run the dig in the mills concept, but it's more of a bender. So he kind of runs directly at the safety at about 15 yards. Gabe Davis releases inside of the cornerback and the cornerback is playing outside leverage on him. Presumably that cornerback believes he has safety help over the top. But what Dawson Knox does by running directly at that safety, he occupies that safety just long enough and that safety doesn't turn his hips and that safety's Juan Thornhill until Gabe Davis is already about to stack on top of him. And with Gabe Davis's speed and Josh Allen's arm, which was ridiculous, they just outrun the safety and the cornerback because Juan Thornhill is in bad position here. He doesn't play it well. His eyes put in conflict by that bender because the bender was wide open off of the play action pass because those linebackers were sucked up so far that Dawson Knox was wide open. So you have Gabe Davis streaking on the post. The throw is just incredible. And then it just goes for 75 yards. But this is a setup here. This is putting Juan Thornhill in conflict off of play action because if you weren't going to throw the ball to Gabe Davis for a 75-yard touchdown, you had about a 40-yard pass to Dawson Knox who was wide open in the middle of the field.
Yeah, you said it best, a Mills-type concept. We've been talking about that for a while. Just for those new to the new to the podcast or haven't heard it before, can you break down exactly what a Mills-type concept is and why it, it, we believe it's such a valuable play call? Well, a Mills concept is the outside receiver is going to run a deep post and the inner receiver is going to run a deep dig. So when you go up against even a, a too high safety like this, you're going to isolate one of those half field safeties because that safety could shoot down on the dig, which this play, he doesn't really shoot down on the dig, but he pays attention to the dig long enough to allow the post to get behind him right. for the touchdown. And that's exactly what ends up happening because on the other side, the other deep half safety, he's playing the other deep half. He's paying attention to Stefan Diggs. He's not occupied with Gabe Davis. That's not his responsibility. So you put that safety in the conflict, you make him think if he makes the wrong decision, then you're screwed for a deep touchdown. And even if he sinks deep, then with the linebackers playing the way they did because of the play action, you had the middle of the field wide open for Dawson Knox. So it's an excellent play to put him in conflict. You need the protection there. You need a quarterback with an insane arm. You need a receiver who is able to outrun the safety and the corner. And that's exactly what the Bills have in this play. And conceptually speaking, like just think about it from this standpoint. If you do a lot of the, if you use a lot of those concepts that put the safeties in conflict and make them, even in that case, like you use, like Nick said, the safety didn't exactly come down and jump it, but at the same time, you respect a bit long enough that it allowed the receiver to get behind him. And when you do something like that, think of how much more valuable it can be versus kind of what we saw from the Giants, right? A lot of what we saw from the Giants was like things of the nature of four spacing, a spacing concept routes, right? Four curls to the sticks. Now, what safety is in conflict when you run four curls to the sticks? None. You don't do anything. You don't put make that safety have to make any kind of decision. And you don't make you don't put him in a spot where he can make a mistake. You're just kind of hoping that you know the timing of the route will be right. There's some yeah. one of those four spacing concepts will get open, right? And it, so it's just a hor horizontal spacing. It's just trying to stretch the defense horizontally and then find the matchup that you like. But it was so predictable that everybody was playing it so tight. They weren't even worried about getting beat deep whatsoever. They could have their safeties back and then everybody would just latch onto the route right away. It was a, it was a disaster, really. And especially in 2020, it was incredibly predictable. I don't feel like it was as used in 2021. I could be wrong there. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But it was insanely predictable in 2020 to the point where the Giants probably lost games because they ran it so much. Yes, exactly. It was definitely, I, I would agree with you. Just don't have the numbers or anything, but I definitely feel like it was more predictable uh, uh, in 2020. But still, again, just like we said, put those guys in conflict. All right, give me the third play you wanted to break down. I think it was the fourth and 13, that incredible touchdown to Gabe Davis. It is the fourth and 13. This is an isolation route, 1v1 versus a cornerback in outside leverage, 27 yard strike to Gabe Davis. So pre-snap, it's a two by two set and you have a stack to the field with Cole Beasley on the line of scrimmage, Gabe Davis off the line of scrimmage. You have the tight end in a two point stance, kind of close to the offensive tackle. He's going to chip release. That is to the boundary side with Stefan Diggs on that side. And pre-snap, you look at the defense, kind of looks like cover four. You have both safeties in the middle of the field. Both of those cornerbacks are kind of playing near the sticks. But at the snap, the safety sinks down towards uh, the Stefan Diggs side to kind of rob the, the route. And it turns into a middle of the field closed look. So you have one safety deep with two cornerbacks, cover three outside playing outside leverage. So what Brian Dayball is going to do on this play is he's going to run to the field side, Cole Beasley, who is in that stack on the line of scrimmage. He's going to run a deep bender directly at that middle of the field safety. So he runs directly at the middle of the field safety. And this is also the play where Josh Allen pump fakes towards Stefan Diggs' side. So that is the boundary side. So if you look at the play on the all 22, the safety is looking directly at Stefan Diggs. And then once the safety turns his head, he sees Cole Beasley running directly at him. So he's 
completely occupied with two different uh, aspects of the play right there with the pump fake and with Cole Beasley. But what that does is it isolates Gabe Davis against the cornerback outside. And all Gabe Davis has to do is win inside against a cornerback with outside leverage. So Gabe Davis runs this cop type of route where he hard jabs his inside foot as he's running a corner route, which gets that cornerback to completely flip his hips. And then he just explodes back inside. And there's nobody. First off, the cornerback falls down. It looked terrible look on the cornerback. He's so lucky the Chiefs ended up winning this game because this would have been terrible if they didn't. Gabe Davis is wide open on this play for a touchdown because that safety is so occupied with so many different things before the designed primary route is open. And that designed primary route is that cop type of route, double move to Gabe Davis in an excellent situation. This was great scheming by Brian Dayball. Yeah, you're damn right it was. And also, obviously, a great job by Gabriel Davis at the top of that route. Davis is, a, a, in my mind, kind of making that was his breakout game. And I think he's going to emerge as a big name in the NFL and a really amazing find in the deep, deep part of that fourth round by the Kansas, I'm um, sorry, by the Buffalo Bills to get him on that roster. All right, Nick, anything else from the offensive side of the ball that you wanted to break down before we talk about some defensive concepts? Yeah, I broke down three touchdowns. I might as well break down the fourth touchdown to Gabe Davis. And this was the last play for the offense last play for Brian Dayball as an offensive coordinator, presumably uh, of the season, because this was a first and 10, 17 seconds left was supposed to be the winning touchdown, a 19 yard strike to Gabe Davis. This is a three by one set six man protection, but the back kind of chips and releases once the linebacker kind of follows him, and it's man coverage from Spags with two safeties deep. And when, with that three-by-one set, you have Gabe Davis as the number three. This is more of a great play by Josh Allen, but I do like the fact that this was a, a too-high defense beater with Gabe Davis kind of running that skinny post from the number three position. And if you watch pre-snap, and I think Josh Allen sees this, he sees that the cornerback is there, there's some sort of mix up between the two cornerbacks that are supposed to be covering Cole Beasley and Gabe Davis. So right before the snap, a cornerback directly aligns over Gabe Davis, but he has severe inside leverage basically right before the snap. I mean, outside leverage. So he's giving Gabe Davis an inside release and Davis wins excellently up the stem and then releases inside. Both those safeties drop to their landmarks. And then Josh Allen recognizes it and throws a strike right in between the safety. Gabe Davis beats his one-on-one matchup and man coverage for that touchdown. That should have been the go-ahead touchdown, but obviously it wasn't fourth touchdown of the day. This one's a little bit more on Josh Allen than it is for Brian Dayball, but I still love the fact that he called a, a like I said, a, a a route that's going to split those safeties and and kind of give his personnel a chance to win a one-on-one matchup, which Gabe Davis did. Yep. It's another just good example. Good play calling, good one-on-one wins. And it sounds like there's some kind of motorcycle going on by Nick's apartment right now. Everything all right over there? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I live in Phoenix, Arizona, as a lot of you know, and there are a lot of people here who love to rev their engines and show how tough they uh, are. So it's pretty wild. Uh, yeah, those are some of my let, let me just say something, Nick. Those are some of my least favorite people in the world at I'm not the a fan of it. risk of offending someone who is one of those per- people who listen to our podcast. I do apologize ahead of time, but I just don't understand. Like, what's the point of the engine rev? Like, what is going on? Are you showing off your engine? Are you showing off your car? Are you just trying to you know, grab attention, uh, seeking attention. I, if anyone is one of these people, I'm not judging you. I, we all have things that we like in this life. 
some more popular, some less popular than others. This one I would probably consider to be a little less popular. I don't see too many people doing it, but I just want to know the the motivation behind the engine revving. Someone give it to me, please. If you have any idea of what the point of this is, just let me know. But now that that's past, Nick, let's talk a little bit about the defensive side of the ball. Some things we like from Patrick Graham, who, by the way, might have a shot at being the coordinator again. We don't know yet. And some things we want to see moving forward for the Giants. Yeah, so there's a lot to like about Patrick Graham. Obviously, he did a really good job. He came in that first year, was relatively unknown, and he really made his stamp on the team and on the New York Giants and was a big reason why the Giants were competitive all the way to week 17 to make the playoffs. And yes, the NFC East sucks, but the Giants were winning football games solely because of their defense and not because of their offense, which was more of a hindrance to begin with. And I I love a lot about Patrick Graham's philosophy. I love that he wasn't all that predictable, used a lot of zone match type of principles. You know, the hybrid front would go in the tight formation when he thought you were going to run the football, try to spill everything outside to sound tacklers who were either outside linebackers or cornerbacks, whoever was playing contain on those plays. He mixed it up for two high defenses to to uh to middle of the field close defenses played a lot of cover three which is middle of the field close have that safety in the middle of the field and i also like how this season once he got a little bit uh more man coverage type of cornerbacks on those third and shorts and especially in the goal line area he did a really good job eliminating you know travis kelsey and tyree kill when they were playing the chiefs darren waller when they were playing las vegas raiders i felt like he did a really good job in those certain situations and if he's not here i think he's going to be missed because i think a lot of offensive coordinators despite the struggles early in the season, you know, would struggle to to adapt to Patrick Graham. Although I will say that I believe Pat Shermer and I believe the offensive coordinator, Scott Turner, for the Washington football team, they were doing a lot of work against Patrick Graham, and it took him a little bit to adjust his defense. But once midseason arrived, I feel like the defense really, really solidified. It was just the offense was so tragically bad that the defense kind of looks like crap at the end of the season. Yeah, you you nailed it. And one thing I really liked about Patrick Graham this year is some of his situational play calls, especially in the red zone. He did a really good job of double teaming at double teaming the receiver who I thought was the first read for the quarterback and who he obviously deducted would be the first read for the quarterback. And sometimes he would take away the first two reads for the quarterback and make it really difficult for that quarterback in the red zone. There were countless times over the last two years on film where we saw that Giants defense bogged down an opposing offense in the red zone simply because they took away everything from a coverage standpoint that the quarterback could see and any easy solution that he could get rid of quick. And by that time, when you're in the end zone and you're taking too long as a quarterback, you don't have have too long we've seen this unfortunately far too many times with daniel jones who takes too much time in the red zone in my opinion to get rid of the ball and to get the ball out um and so when you don't when you take too much time down there those windows close really really fast and the defensive line eventually gets there and i thought patrick graham did a really good job specifically taking away what teams want to do in the red zone what they've shown they can do successfully and that's something i want to see from the next coordinator as well Absolutely. Yeah. That's something that you would hope because red zone efficiency is a gigantic part to winning football. And we saw that with the Giants on offense. They were terrible, but the defense wasn't all that bad other than the beginning of the season when they were getting beaten man coverage by tight ends. It seemed like quite often, but we're going to miss Patrick Graham if he's not there. Wasn't overly aggressive as a, as a blitzer, but I, I felt like he was smart in when he called blitzes. He loved bringing the nickel blitz. He used a little bit of simulated pressure by bringing, you know, the cornerbacks and the linebackers. What I mean by simulated pressure, it's, it's pressure that is not 
from the from the guys you would typically think would provide pressure so the edges and the defensive linemen also use creepers guys who look like they were coming and then they would back off and then you would send an extra guy from the other side that you didn't expect to come and that manipulates the protection I felt like Graham did a pretty good job of that and I also feel like Brian Flores did an excellent job of that Don Martindale the recently unemployed defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens also did an excellent job of that and is known for that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of solid defensive minds out there, but honestly, I would not mind. And I would actually like if Patrick Graham was retained somehow by this new coaching staff. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, Something that we might want to see, and we've talked about this a little bit with Brian Flores potentially being rumored to be coming close to the giants or a potential option as head coach is a little bit more, of an aggressive style on defense. Now, I think at times it's it's better used than others. Like they're like everybody talked about that Bucks Giants game from earlier this year. They're like, what the hell were the Giants doing? What are they doing not blitzing Brady? If they're just sitting back there, nothing good is going to happen. But like you can't blitz Tom Brady, right? You just can't do it. You blitz him and he just finds a solution. And there's so much risk involved in it because you could have one guy out of position because you're blitzing. And now that leads to a 55 yard play instead of what would have been a 10 yard completion. Uh, and then you give your chance, you know, you in, in, in one in one area, in one example, you're you're allowing a 55 yard touchdown. In the other, you're giving your defense a chance to help bog them down in the red zone and turn what would have been seven points into three points, which ultimately can make a difference. Obviously, we know as Giants fans how invaluable the constant field goal kicking can be as far as winning football games. So I would still, in my mind, like to see that that example, this not uh, excluded, I should say, a more aggressive approach, I guess, at times. Because I think there are games, Nick, and this is just my general observation. I'm curious to get your take on this. This is not very nuanced, I don't think, but it's a, interesting observation in my mind that I can't get away from. And so I'm curious to hear your take on it, but that there are just times where I'm watching an NFL football game. And I know whether that be partly because of the weather is bad and it's just super cold partly because, but mostly because or partly let's say because the offensive line has injuries or is not playing well, but mostly because of the quarterback that you can just simply play an insanely aggressive strategy against that quarterback and just press up on the press up on that quarterback blitz often use your safeties around the line of scrimmage often. And there's just nothing they can do. Like the, the protection isn't there. The quarterback doesn't have solutions to move the ball downfield. Doesn't have the ball placement to move the ball downfield, the velocity, whatever it may be. And I feel like there have been times in the past where the giants have faced these quarterbacks and they haven't really deviated too much to, you know, going forward with just an insanely aggressive game plan or something of that nature to take advantage of the quarterback who just can't rise to the moment and just can't beat an aggressive approach. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something that I, I do tend to agree with. I feel like the Giants were a little bit more conservative when they were playing quarterbacks that weren't excellent, but I felt like they did a lot of creative things on the back end while bringing a five-man pressure package to take advantage of those types of quarterbacks. We saw that a lot in 2020 because the Giants played the Brandon Allens of the world and the Alex Smiths on the back end of his career, and they were able to bait those players either into – taking sacks they probably shouldn't have or into turnovers that they probably shouldn't have thrown or even strip fumbles. So I feel like on the back end, they did a solid job with the trap coverages and kind of mixing things up to confuse those quarterbacks. But in terms of really just bringing heavy pressure, it wasn't something that was a part of Patrick Graham's game plan all that often. He didn't bring cover zero all that much where you, it's just, you know, nobody's back there to help you. It's just, I'm on my assignment. If my assignment beats me, we're screwed as a defense. Whereas Wink Martindale, Brian Flores brought a lot more cover zero. That's what they did. I mean, you go back to that Ravens game, bro. 
when the Giants played the Ravens last season, one of those sacks against Matt Parrott was just an absolute just manipulation of the Giants protection. I mean, they, they aligned, right. I think it was like three or four guys to the left side of the Giants line. And they just put a five technique on Matt Parrott with one other player showing that he was going to come. But with those four other guys, it forced the Giants to slide their entire protection in that direction. And then Matt Parrott was isolated on a 3v1. There's nothing he can do in that situation. The the Ravens cre- uh, brought two creepers off from that four-man side, dropped them into zone coverage, and then Daniel Jones couldn't find the hot receiver, and he was sacked. And that was one of the sacks that happened three plays consecutively all to Matt Parrott's side. It was because Martindale recognized that, dude, we're going to take advantage of this right rookie right tackle and absolutely just annihilate this young quarterback. And that's exactly what they did. And I would love to see that a little bit more consistently. And I think Patrick Graham did a solid job at that. He just wasn't as aggressive as these two coordinators that, or, you know, coordinator slash head coach that we're discussing. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, you said it best, Nick. I feel like a lot of these coordinators around the NFL, to me, it's always different, a completely different ball game, breaking down offensive schematics than defensive schematics. Cause I feel like there's just so much more you can do offensively and there's so much more continuity and kind of, uh, let's say copycat repetitiveness on the defensive side of the ball as far as what I see, what these guys are calling. But one way to differentiate yourself is that going for broke approach at times. And I just feel like against some of these quarterbacks and offensive lines, you can afford to go for broke. Like I just watch enough football to know there are just times where that go for broke approach against a specific offensive line with a specific quarterback, that specific offensive line and quarterback has no answer literally for it. Vis-a-vis, they might have an answer if you kind of play a more zone-based approach and you're not as aggressive with it. They might find answers randomly. They might have a game where their ball placement is good or they're just seeing the field well or there's broken tackles, whatever it may be. But there's just sometimes I feel like they just no answer. No answer at all. We haven't seen it as much recently. Obviously, in the playoffs, it's been a very offensive-heavy playoffs. But in the past, I have seen it in the playoffs as well. So definitely something I'm looking forward to more. more, uh, In some ways, a more risk-averse, or yeah, I guess that would be the best way, less risk-averse coach. Yeah, it's it's interesting, man. I mean, it, I mean, you brought this up last podcast. The Giants were interviewing a lot of defensive coaches. So I'm wondering if they do interview these defensive coaches, will these defensive coaches be the defensive play callers? Now I think Brian Flores would, but would a Leslie Frazier, I'm not really hundred percent certain, but I think the, this entire situation to me, and I've used this word several times is fascinating, man. I, I think this is a new start, a new chapter. It's something to, it's some kind of light at this just dark, dark tunnel, you know, and hopefully the Giants can kind of reach that light. I feel like the hiring of Joe Shane is a step in the right direction, but there's still so much work to be done. So I'm hoping they can nail this head coaching hire. And then more, almost more importantly, probably not more importantly, but almost more importantly, because it kind of falls within the, um, falls within the umbrella of hiring the head coaches. Who is that head coach going to surround himself with and who will be his staff. And that is something that we don't talk a lot about, but something that is imperative to success. So I'm wondering who Brian Dayball can even extract from Sean McDermott's coaching staff. If Brian Dayball is the choice. Yeah. Great point. And to that nature, it is interesting to note, like, you know, the giants have obviously so far interviewed a vast majority of defensive minded defensive first head coach candidates. But remember when Bill, when Brandon Bean started that thing over in Buffalo, he Brought, he started the foundation by bringing over Sean Mc, bringing over McDermott, who obviously is defensive-minded coach, defensive philosophy. And so he maybe, in, in some ways, he's considering um, 
the idea of just kind of repeating that same process and building a similar foundation to what they did in Buffalo. Just something I thought about when I've th- kind of tried to rack my brain as to why there's been so many defensive candidates and and not really any offensive minds besides Dabo. I think that's a solid one. It's also just the the candidates that are available as well. But uh, like like we said last podcast, I mean, I think if if I had to choose who it would be, it would be Brian Dayball, who's an offensive minded guy, and then that sets up you know, who's going to be the defensive coordinator. He's not a defensive guy. So would they retain Patrick Graham and all these questions? Would they look to bring in someone like Wink Martindale, who's uh, well-respected, had a really good defense up until this season for the Baltimore Ravens. And uh, I mean, we'll get more clarity in the coming weeks as to what's going to happen, but we need that head coaching domino to fall before we find out who these coordinators are. Yep. Without a doubt. All right, Nick, anything else defensively or anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? Nah, I'm good, man. I'm just excited, bro. Excited to see what exactly happens. And that's not something I've used with the New York Giants much uh, in the last six months because there was little to be excited about watching that team on the All-22 after I had to watch it on the broadcast angle. It was, uh, you know, uh, I felt like I was being punished. (laughs) You're not the only one. But good times, better times ahead. It's hard to get worse, we hope. Um, And, you know, though we did say in the last podcast, one thing we learned that it always can get worse. but let's find out. Let, let, let's let's take the optimistic approach for now. But we'll talk to you soon at at, at the early at the latest. It'll be Wednesday um, when right after Joe Shane speaks to the media. But you never know. Could be sooner than that if the Giants move fast on this head coach thing. So have a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you soon. happening daily we're being conned by the institutions we used to trust the mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing american families time is short before something big happens and that's why so many folks are preparing they're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from my patriot supply go to mypatriotsupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com